0: the team of brass. I'm Carson Sestouli, this is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Thursday. It's his weekly Monday appearance, except owing to the host's own vacation occurring on a Thursday. The managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program, as he does in every one of his appearances. Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note. This past weekend, in either Cambridge, Massachusetts, or Boston, Massachusetts, one or the other. The Saber Seminar event, the sixth of them, the Saber Seminar event took place, featuring some of the more notable members of the public-facing baseball analytics community, as well as members of teams themselves, including, for example, Boston Red Sox president Dave Dombrowski. The camera provides a summary of the event with a closer examination of two presentations in particular on the likely causes of the home run spike in baseball this year, which just seen the league produce 24% more home runs at this point in the season than last year. On Thursday, the Toronto Blue Jays fired not only scouting director Brian Parker, but also national cross-checker Blake Davis. This less than a year after former Toronto Blue Jays GM Alex Anthopoulos left the team following the arrival of first-year president Mark Shapiro. It seems like quite a bit of turnover for a team that has had considerable success in the last couple years after an even considerably longer drought. I asked Cameron if this is unusual, and he answers that question, saying it's not as unusual as you might think. As not all. Of course, Cameron also provides a brief but inarguably accurate characterization of this program itself.
1: It's a okay thing that it exists. No one really knows why it exists. It's a little silly.
0: Those aspersions and others just like it cast in the conversation to follow. However, before we enjoy that, we must enjoy even more a sponsor's message. The sponsor is SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com. Have you ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets online, find yourself afflicted by equal parts work and hassle? Then it is likely uh, that you have not utilized SeatGeek. What SeatGeek does is to take all the available tickets from other sites, to aggregate them into one place, giving customers the ultimate opportunity to save both time and money. What else SeatGeek does is to assess a grade based on value to every ticket so as to best exploit the inefficiencies in the ticket buying market. And finally, what else is SeatGeek known for besides being honest and upfront about the price? Unlike StubHub, for example, which I'll say like that, StubHub, what SeatGeek does is to show you the full ticket price from the beginning to the end of the transaction, never surprising you with fees, mysterious fees at checkout. For having endured this message, listeners can treat themselves to a $20 rebate on their first SeatGeek purchase. Here's how you claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app. You go to the Settings tab and click Add a Promo Code. Enter the promo code Fangraphs. That's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. Fangraphs. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download that free SeatGeek app. Download the free SeatGeek app. Download the free SeatGeek app. and Enter the promo code Fangraphs today at your nearest Possible convenience, with which we have now completed the sponsor's message and almost the entire introduction. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who is the future managing editor of Fangraphs? Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now. I think that that would come as a surprise to many people. Yeah,
1: no, I think uh, probably most people think I run on batteries.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The um, <clears throat> what is battery technology like at this point? Someone, still, uh, my still pretty good.
1: It's, it's what still pretty good.
0: My um my my stepfather said the words "ion battery" the other day. Okay, that's a thing. Does that mean anything?
1: Yeah, it means it's a battery charged by ions. Oh.
0: Okay, you know, that's a good battery?
1: No, I don't I'm not a battery expert. I do know that like uh isn't that like part of the big revolution with Tesla? Is they're trying to make these like a battery factory, or what they call it giga factory, where they can make these uh battery packs for their cars that'll theoretically revolutionize um, auto trans transportation and like make them swappable and but that's like been the big holdback of like, you know, people have been wanting uh electric cars forever, but the batteries just aren't very good.
0: Right.
1: You know, same thing with phones, right? Like, we we have, like, phones that can do everything for you except for stay charged for more than an hour. <laughs> uh,
0: this is typically, uh, we, I typically reserve the beginning part of the show for a segment or a quasi-segment known as Practical Analytics, Dave. Uh-huh. Yeah. Where we apply the same sort of, um, an analytical bent of mind to reality, uh, that we're accustomed to applying to baseball. Uh-huh. Uh, I do have a question for that, but I'm going to reserve it for the end because, uh, even for my tastes, uh, it's a bit irreverent, or uh, irrelevant. Irrelevant is actually the word I mean.
1: It's not because you got yelled at and told to move it to the end?
0: No, I don't, uh, no, it's not. It just, uh, it's even, it's even preposterous for me. It just concerns gutters versus French drains. It's, uh, uh it's, yeah, it's, well, it's that, that,
1: that, there's nothing practical about this. So you're just, you're just asking for free advice.
0: Uh, yeah. That's exactly right, so what i would uh what I would actually like to do is I would like to begin uh begin well uh, I guess in in some ways I'm going to need a um a recap i suppose of the week or week plus i I've been gone since last Friday but uh let's start I would like to hear a, a bit of a summary about Sabre seminar, which was held i believe this past weekend in Cambridge, Massachusetts or Boston Massachusetts and featured um Featured yourself and other, uh, other 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 names familiar to listeners of the program.
1: Uh, it featured other people, and then I was there too. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was. It's the sixth annual Saber Seminar. So um, I think the actual name of it is what the Sabermetric Scouting and the Science of Baseball. So it's uh, not just necessarily a, a nerdy analytics conference, but it is. Um, uh, one that attracts many of the brightest and, uh, most well, the, the the best experts in their field, right? So you had Alan Nathan, who's the physicist of, kind of the, the physicist for all of baseball and kind of uh, generally accepted as the guy who knows the most about this kind of stuff or physics-related matters when it comes to baseball. You had a whole bunch of, uh, actual doctors, uh, including uh, a guy who was the team physician for the Red Sox for a decade, Um So you have like, you know, people with real qualifications giving educated, uh, presentations on a wide variety of topics. And then you had schlubs like me.
0: Right. Schlubs. Yeah. So this is, this is a little bit. So of course every year around this time, maybe it it might, I think it was a few weeks ago, there's also the, um, there's also the actual, there's what the Sabre convention, which is a, an event sponsored by the Society for American Baseball Research, which also hosts um, talks and presentations however these are these are typically delivered by um i 'm not going to say just members of the organization, but they tend not to be they tend not to be involved um in baseball per se
1: sure the lay people
0: the lay people sure right and i and many people derive satisfaction from that event and that 's fine what you' but what uh what it seems that like you 're suggesting Sabre seminar typically uh has research projects delivered by people who um were intimately engaged in the game. And also I think it's not the, it's it's less historical, right? And everything really does have some some sort of analytical uh bent to it.
1: Yeah, I mean this is definitely more forward looking. I mean so like uh Meredith Wills who's an astrophysicist uh gave a talk on uh, the best catchers of all time defensively, so that there was like some history, but that's definitely the minority. Most of it was uh, generated around like the current game, the future game, where the game's going. So you had like Brian Mills, uh, who's a professor uh, of economics at the University of Florida. He gave a talk on the strike zone and how it's changing and how that might be impacting. Uh, the home run, Alan Nathan, as I mentioned, was there. He gave a talk about potential for the juiced ball, which is a big conversation point at the moment. Um, you know, Dave Dombrowski from the Red Sox happened to come and kind of take some questions from the audience. Uh, uh, the Red Sox uh, scouting uh, team, essentially, their international director, their amateur director, the pro scouting uh, director, they all came and took questions. Uh, John Baker and Brian Bannister, uh, recently retired major league players, uh, came and gave a talk. Uh, so there's a, you know, a wide range of, um, of, uh, of people from different aspects of the game, but lots of them with legitimate credentials to be up there speaking.
0: And, and what were you there doing?
1: Uh, making jokes, basically. I do what they call the outro every year, so I'm the last thing on the schedule, 4.30 on Sunday, for the people who haven't been smart enough to buy a plane ticket, and stick around to the bitter end, I get up there and make jokes. And take questions and have a good but time.
0: yeah have has this seen you But you've I think you've talked with Ben Lindbergh at this point
1: yeah Mitchell Lickman and I did it a few years ago and, uh, Ben Lindbergh and I have done it this year. Ben decided to record an effectively wild podcast live with Sam Miller and John mm-hmm. Baker uh, and David Ardsville, who happened to attend. He just came as an attendee uh, and so they were on their podcast. so I guess Ben decided he would rather talk to Sam on Saturday than me on Sunday.
0: but that's fine mm-hmm. Ben
1: I'm not better at all.
0: So wait, did you just, uh, did you just, were you just there by yourself?
1: Yeah, I did the outro by myself. And the first oh. question was from David Arzma, so I had, a, I had a good good chat with David Arzma in public.
0: David Arzma, you know, I don't necessarily know, uh, anything is gonna be the answer about David Arzma as a person. I do know that he had, uh, some uh, remember, I think reasonably effective seasons as a, as a, uh, relief pitcher, is that right?
1: He had a couple of good years as a closer. He always struck a lot of guys out, but his command was iffy, but then, like, for about an 18-month stretch, he ironed out his command just enough to rack up a bunch of saves.
0: Yeah, now, was that around his tenure with, he played with the White Sox at one point?
1: Yeah, he's played with a lot of teams. I think he's played with okay. nine teams in eight years. Uh, he primarily, uh, had his, did his best work in Seattle.
0: Oh, okay, alright. Uh, and, uh, was there any, does he know why he succeeded then as opposed to other times?
1: Not really. He basically just said, I threw enough strikes. And what, uh, what did Dave Vardsman ask you? Uh, so he asked about the concept of replacement level and platoons. So he pointed out that, uh, a player, and I think he might have even used Nick Marquez's name, that his agent had pointed to him and said, war undervalues, uh, players who are not pinch hit for because they, are good enough to stay in the games the entire time. So a guy like Nick Varquekis, who will have to face good left-handed relief pitching late in the game and will have his numbers driven down, uh, is hurt by war, according to this theory, versus a guy who's a platoon guy, like maybe say Matt Joyce, who gets pinch hit for against that lefty and doesn't have that at bat. Um, and so they were, he, his point and his agents point to him that he was basically asking on behalf of his agent is have we accounted for the fact or are we overrating full-time players who just take the field every day? And then at that point I kind of explained the barrier for replacement level is very, very low. So if you just take the field and not entirely embarrass yourself, you get some credit just for that. Uh, and I explained to him kind of the difference between average and replacement level and why we use replacement level just for that reason to give players who play, uh, and play above, you know, a very low threshold a uh, a minimum level of uh, kind of reward for taking the field.
0: There is probably some advantage to, uh, I mean, in having players who, who um, do, you know, have to, to the degree that we can measure it, who have um, less of a platoon of split, right? Because then you're not pinch hitting for them, and that way you can utilize the roster spot in some other way.
1: Right. So especially I think now in this day and age of like, uh, eight man bullpens where most teams now are carrying 13 pitchers or at least 12. Um, you are in a position where bench position player, uh, roster, roster spots are at a premium. So if you're platooning at multiple positions, you probably don't have the flexibility to, you know, uh, run out a decent lineup there, uh, if someone gets injured and you can really be put in a, in a tough position, uh, if, if the game goes in extra innings. Um, so I think if you can have if you're if you're gonna run a really large pitching staff because you want to mix a match on the pitching side, it makes it harder to do that on the on the offensive side. You can basically pick one side of the ball and say I want to play the matchups on this side. Uh, historically, teams ran them on the hitting side. Lately, they've been running them on the pitching side. Is it
0: roughly? Do you suppose it all comes out in the wash? Um, so far as that's concerned, being able to control your pitchers late in a game as opposed to being able to control your batters.
1: I'm not so sure it has to do as much with controls, I really think it is, uh, changing workloads. So now that we don't have pitchers throwing 270 innings anymore, and we don't mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, kind of guys throwing 140, 150 pitches a game. uh, I think the idea is that teams are being a little bit more careful with each individual pitchers workload, and therefore you just need more pitchers. So the quantity of pitchers has gone up as the usage of pitching, each individual pitcher has gone down. And as the quantity of pitchers goes up, that has necessitated a shrinking of position players.
0: Is there any correlation? Dave Cameron, I was thinking about this. Is there any correlation between, or I should uh, perhaps an inverse in? It's not an invoice correlation. It's an inverse correlation between the rising average fastball velocity of starters, which I think has increased by like a mile per hour just over the last like three or four years, and the relative uh, – the increasing brevity of the average start.
1: Yeah, I mean I, – so I don't think what we've seen is um, uh like – big declines where guys are, you know, losing velocity necessarily earlier. But I do think now that pitchers know that they're not being asked to go seven, eight, nine innings all that often anymore and that, you know, it's perfectly acceptable for them to go 6 innings and throw their 110 pitches and come out of the game, that they're going to pitch at higher effort levels for the earlier part of the game. I think, you know, traditionally, back 20 years ago, The idea was the pitcher would pace themselves and and kind of give up a bunch of runs early and that would be okay as long as they got through seven or eight innings. Now it is, you know, if you give up a bunch of runs early on, you're going to get pulled and teams aren't going to let you just sit out there and throw the game away. So I think that we have seen an uptick in velocity as part of the change in usage. I do think they go hand in hand.
0: Uh, This also reminds me of a a pitching related question that I uh, put to Eric Longenhagen, the last time he appeared on the program. Uh, and this will be a quick detour from what is, uh, amounting to a conversation right now about Sabre Seminar. Uh, what I would like to ask you though is the same question I asked Eric Longenhagen. I, um, he, all he could do is really offer a guest based off of his experience mostly, uh, n- uh not, it seemed uh, as much with, um, analyzing prospects, but more of his time working for, Baseball Info Solutions. Does it sound like something that's, he did? That's the
1: company he worked for. Yeah,
0: yeah a lot of a lot of pitch uh, charting is what he did. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking about the uh, the phenomena or the yeah, of command and of attempting in the difficulty, the elusive nature of command in, in terms of um, attempting to quantify it. I said here, I said if we if we consider can, uh, command, both the pitcher's ability to place a pitch. Um, where he would like to, yeah, and then with also the same sort, you know, the relative the movement and velocity that he'd like to impart to the pitch. Uh, how many times, if you say a pitcher throws a hundred pitches in a game, how many of those pitches do you think he he throws where where he wants to and with the sort of shape and velocity uh, with which he'd like to?
1: Hmm. Like, how precise are we thinking? Like, if he aims low and away. And then misses a little bit off the plate, you know, by a few inches. Is that considered a miss? Like, does he have to like hit the glove? He has to hit the glove. Oh man, I think how how many pitches a game? What percentage of pitches a pitcher hits the glove? I don't know, forty percent, thirty five percent. Not not many.
0: Okay, yeah. We can fi- we can figure it out. I was trying to think like, oh well, no. So I was saying eighty grade command, like an exhibition of eighty grade command. Like, oh. how often do you think Clayton Kershaw does it?
1: Maybe sixty percent of the time, sixty-five percent of the time. Okay. What did Eric say?
0: He said uh, he said two-thirds.
1: Okay. So yeah, we're, we're guessing on the same lines,
0: and probably uh, so. And then a listener uh, brought to my attention, or our, our attention, Eric as well, uh, a quote from Greg Maddox, who 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 said sixty-five as well, oh, and right. he seems probably the most. <laughs>
1: yeah, I would defer to him more than I would to Eric.
0: Yeah, I know. Well, that's a good one.
1: Although, it's to be fair... Oh,
0: okay. Uh, to be fair,
1: Eric... Sorry, oh, sorry about that. I did sneeze as far away from the microphone as possible.
0: Eric did uh, Eric spend a lot of time charting pitches.
1: Yeah, probably less time than Greg Maddux
0: did. That's also a good point. Yeah. How, how many... Uh, I mean, a pitcher on his way up, especially, right? He spends a lot of time charting games.
1: Yeah, and I think Maddox was notorious for like keeping notebooks and like uh, having his own kind of research and and tracking what every hitter did. So I think probably more than even most pitchers, Greg Maddox watched a lot of pitches.
0: Right. And uh, like many of us uh, in, uh who work for a site, like Fangraphs, for example, or just enjoy a site like Fangraphs, he wore glasses. This is what, this is what Greg Maddox said. He said, this is the way I look at it. Uh, and this is, uh, cur- uh courtesy, uh, concerned reader, concerned listener, Rob Friedman. Uh, maybe from, yeah, anyway, it's from another site. Uh, this is the way I look at it. If you can put the ball where you want two out of three times, that's a very low percentage chance. There's a very low percentage chance you'll get hurt. Take 100 pitches in the game. Say 66. I can put exactly where I want. That leaves 34. About half of those. Say seventeen will be so bad, bounced curve balls, things like that that the guy's not going to swing now. I'm down to seventeen pitches out of that hundred that I have to get away with,
1: yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I had never heard that quote, but that's kind of a fascinating, fascinating idea, and like uh it would be interesting to see i mean uh if we could figure out like which pitchers kind of have to get away with the most pitches per game mm-hmm. uh, that would actually be kind of a fun metric,
0: yeah. Yeah, right. Those are the bitches that you what you've misplaced in a way that's dangerous to, right. and and presumably, um, I mean, not in every case, right? But that's seventeen pitches and of course, a guy with with worse command, that's going to be a higher number probably. Yeah. Um, th- this is where this is a, this is a, a moment where velocity uh, becomes important.
1: Yeah, or just stop, right? Like, if, if you right. like miss with a hundred and two, that's that's probably still okay.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. You can do that. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. How many pitches do you have to get away with? Maybe we one of us can figure that out. Uh,
1: yeah. Someday. I know like uh, SportVision had a, what they called command effects where they were trying to track the glove uh, and the kind of the position point of the glove. Um, so this is like a thing that SportVision has been tracking for, I don't know, four or five years at this point. Uh, but I believe in talking with team representatives, no one put a ton of credit into it because – uh, the catcher doesn't always send that, set up exactly where he wants the pitcher to throw it to. And, uh, there's camera problems. And so I think this is like actually like a little bit of a complicated problem. Like I know there have been attempts to capture this, but I don't know that anyone's actually solved it.
0: Right. It, but of course, Greg Maddox, more than anyone, as we said, or certainly more than, um, dummies like you, uh, like you and Eric Longenhagen, uh, he knows where he wants to put the ball.
1: Right. Yes. Uh, this is one of those times where probably the best data is just what the pitchers tell us.
0: Right. Okay. Uh so returning to Saber seminar, uh, you mentioned a couple of things. What uh any I have just asked this this is a miserable question but it uh, should could lead to something. What uh any any particular presentations uh, that resonated with you that uh, perhaps asked a question that you had not considered and and answered it uh competently?
1: Um I don't know about asking a question we hadn't considered, but I do think that like The two talks that I probably enjoyed the most were actually back to back. I've already mentioned them, but Alan Nathan, uh, gave a talk on our balls juiced and then Brian Mills gave a talk on whether the strike zone is impacting the home run rates. So like, I think, you know, one of the probably the biggest conversation points of the 2016 season is the home runs are up and they're up a lot since last, the second half of last year. What
0: is the, and so when we say up, do we mean, do you mean raw total or, or like by, like per contact essentially?
1: Both. So okay. I think uh, right now we're at 24% more home runs this year than last year, which is uh, a lot. That is a big Definitely. increase. It right? is not a small, like, small blurb.
0: Uh, and what's the chances that's random?
1: Like zero. There is okay. there is a cause. There's just no way that you would have a sustained effect for this long without a significant reason, uh, just out of random variation. The question is, what is the cause? And that's something that a lot of smart people have been asking for the last year and haven't figured out necessarily. So Rob Arthur and Ben Lindbergh have written several pieces about this at 538. They suspect and think they found evidence for the ball being juiced. Alan Nathan gave a talk and said, look, I see what you're saying. I see how this could be. I've tested baseballs before. There certainly can be variation in what they call the COR, the the, uh, resistance of the inside of the ball that allows it to travel. Um... So you know there, there certainly are manufacturing variances where the ball could be different, and that could be for the reason for the home runs. Um, but what he showed is that exit velocity is the primary reason for the change in home runs. It's not wind. It's not ballpark. Uh, when you can you can basically eliminate all these other kind of external factors and show that like for the balls being hit to the deepest part of the outfield, they're not turning into home runs anymore often. It's just there are more balls being hit to the deepest parts of the outfield. So that takes away kind of atmospheric effects and it takes away ballpark effects. It takes away um, park effects in general. So what we're really qu- trying to ask is why are more hitters hitting the ball uh, kind of in that ideal range of like exit velocity and launch angle to where the ball will turn into a home run? And um, it, the ball being juiced is a pretty reasonable explanation for that. If the ball flies off the bat uh, better, then you're going to get higher exit velocities and that's going to lead to more home runs and that would basically explain the change but Alan um, and he's written this horrible time previously but he kind of gave the talk of that presentation and it says look if you look at line drive data which should be the most sensitive to changes in batted balls because or in in exit velocity on contact uh, there's almost no change and these are the balls that are hit the squarest so why would the ball only be juiced uh, for like fly balls but not for line drives that doesn't make any sense um, so we have like a Contradictory data point that no one has really been able to explain away except for maybe the data is bad, but no one's been able to prove that either. And then, uh, so he, Alan Nathan's presentation was basically like, the ball might be juiced, but here's a reason why it might not be, or at least something we have to explain away before we can conclude that it is. And that, and he didn't have a, a reasonable explanation for it other than it's a, it's a phenomenon. Brian Mills, uh, then got up and explained, but the strike zone has changed, and it looks like uh, potentially has been r- raised a bit. So the bottom end of the strike zone has come up a little bit. Uh, the top end of the strike zone has come up a little bit. So perhaps pitchers are pitching the ball higher than they used to, and perhaps this would lead to a change in home runs. Uh, but then he actually went through the math and was like, this actually explains a very small difference in the, like, with the pitch locations. And if you actually look at where pitchers are pitching this year, they're not really grooving more pitches in a way that would lead to this kind of sustained increase. So the strike zone doesn't explain it either. So after those two docs, <laughs> we were basically left with, we still don't know.
0: So it, there do, there does appear to be a, a narrative that's, um, attached to, to more players all the time. And that's, the, the, the player who decides, uh, simply to start pulling the ball, uh, I mean, there, there are a number of sort of archetypal examples like this. Dozier, Brian Dozier is one of them. Uh, Jose Bautista became the sort of player at a certain point in his career. And I think, um, a new, a diamondback, a diamondback named, Jake not Lam. named who? Jake Lamb. Named, named Jake Lamb. That's right. A diamondback named Jake Lamb has also, uh, appears there's evidence that he's adopted this strategy, which results uh in more home runs and probably more fly balls I, I don't know if that's definitely the case but usually getting the ball into the air is, seems to be an element of it uh is it possible that a decision um, that this uh the growing popularity of this uh, tactic for approaching uh, for you know with regard to the swing it, it could in any way be responsible for it
1: uh, so it's, it seems like a logical place to look, but that if you actually look at the data, uh, so like, uh, basically everyone who looked at this, Bill Petty, Alan Nathan, uh, basically everybody, Rob Arthur, everyone who's looked at this has controlled for launch angle, uh, mm-hmm. like the idea that hitters would start up cutting the ball more, and have cha- have found a very small change in launch angle, certainly not large enough to explain this big spike in home runs, and the same is true with pull, so like we have, we have, at the league level, we have a substantial, dramatic increase in home runs that is not explained by any of these small changes in either the strike zone or um, in the kind of the, the shift in the way uh, the ball is being hit, um, except for the fact that the ball is being hit harder. So, like, really, like, we've basically narrowed it down to, like, this is the cause of the home run is the, the, the spike in home runs is that the ball is traveling faster at contact off the bat. Uh, it's not direction, it's not atmosphere, it's not anything else. It's, it's the increase in exit velocity. We just don't know what's causing the exit velocity increase. What
0: would be, say, say we, we, um jump to the, the, the conspiracy theory. Yeah. What is, I mean, what, what is the, what is a legitimate, I mean, it's probably a contradiction. What is the most legitimate seeming conspiracy? What would be the incentive and by whom?
1: So I think the conspiracy theory isn't necessarily so much a conspiracy as much as it is a uh, an understanding of how baseballs are manufactured and the fact that this can happen without uh, someone deciding to enforce this action intentionally. So like Alan Nathan, during his talk – he said he found – or someone uh, found some baseballs from the 1970s, and like 12 years ago, he went and tested them in a lab, and they have like a scientific model for testing the COR of a baseball, and they found a pretty wide variance uh, in between the CORs of these old baseballs, and then they tested some recent ones, and the variance is much smaller, but the – in the actual league rules – the allowable variance in the core of the baseball is actually very large. Like a, So like Rawlings, the manufacturers of the ball, uh, could say, look, you know, this is not a significant enough change in the COR of the baseballs we're manufacturing to um, recall them all and say, oh, these are not consistent enough. There's actually – MLB allows a pretty significant variation from um, from season to season or from baseball to baseball. The balls don't all have to be exactly the same. Um, and the testing procedures for them are a little bit strange in terms of how they measure uh, what's in the acceptable range. So I think the most likely, from my perspective, um, kind of story that would, that would make sense and fit the facts as we know them is something changed in the manufacturing that wasn't intentional. So this isn't Major League Baseball calling Rawlings and saying, we want you to juice the ball and don't tell anyone about it. This is whether it's a new machine or a, you know, some change in the equipment where the ball is actually being manufactured at some point during, you know, around the middle of last season, something changed and the balls that have been manufactured since then have a uh, uh, higher COR. So they, they travel farther. I don't think that this was, I, I could be wrong, but I'm guessing Rob Manfred didn't, didn't assume that he could get away with this and just uh, think that no one would notice. Like, certainly it's easy to say, oh, Major League Baseball wants more offense in the game, uh, and, you know, now that the strike zone is eating up a, a lot of the offense, this is one way to fix it, is to juice the baseball so there's more home runs, and there's more offense, and then people like it more. But it's also a very obvious thing to notice, right? Like, you can't imagine that you could get away with this. Uh, so I don't think that this is, uh, kind of a conspiracy in the, like, uh, put on some tinfoil hats. This is major league baseball trying to change the game on purpose. I think that just something changed that maybe no one noticed until this year.
0: And is this the sort of thing? I, I think the answer is no. Is this the sort of thing that would help a certain type of player?
1: Uh, maybe. So I think one of the interesting conversations we had over the, over the weekend, uh, cause I think Sunday during the conference, Mookie Betts hit three home runs. <laughs> and I think he hit like 50 cents then, uh, but we have, like, you know, guys who are not considered power hitters who are hitting for real power again this year or not again for the first time, right? So, like, Jose Altuve is going to hit 20 home runs this year. I mean, guys who were um, kind of slap hitters uh, have really seen a big increase. And I think Craig Edwards just wrote a post for Fangrass noting that, like, second basemen are hitting better than ever this year. It was like, the best second base offense season of all time. Um, yeah. So we're seeing kind of non-traditional power like when back when kind of the steroids era was happening we saw just giant guys hitting a bunch of home runs right you had bonds and mcguire and sosa and these like big muscle bound sluggers were um hitting 60 or 70 home runs and then you had lots of first basemen hitting 40 if this is like less of that i mean we do have edwin incarnacion who's hit like 50 home runs over the last year but we don't have anyone threatening 60 or 70 anymore but we do have you know a whole bunch of middle infielders hitting 25 so i think it's um Potentially fair to ask, like, are the guys who are hitting kind of gap power, like a, you know, long fly ball to the outfield, are they getting a bigger boost? So that the Mookie Bettses of the world or the Dustin Pedroia's of the world are they getting a bigger relative boost from this than a guy like Giancarlo Stanton, who every ball he hits hard is already going 450 feet, and now it goes 470 feet, and that doesn't really help him at all.
0: And I think maybe it should be noted that that Betts and Altuve have uh, both have distinctly above average contact skills.
1: Right. So if you, if you make more contact, you're more likely to benefit from a livelier baseball than if you're swinging this a lot because, because you have more opportunities for that livelier baseball to go far.
0: Right. Okay. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you, you've just drawn my attention to the sort of season that Edwin Encarnacion is having. I, I assumed that he was struggling relative to his established level. to
1: start, but he has been hitting a lot of bombs lately.
0: Yes, it, it seems as the one contact in particular he's been succeeding, um, which uh, of course is consonant with our argument or our conversation here. Okay, uh, well that's that's great. Sounds like a great event. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, some uh, silly percentage of the funds uh, goes to the the Jimmy Fund to help cancer.
1: Yeah, oh, fifty percent goes to the Jimmy Fund. This year they also partnered with the Angioma Alliance, which is Angioma is a what, a cavernous brain bleed, which is what Ryan Westmoreland had, and the, uh, Ryan Westmoreland was a talented Red Sox prospect who, um, whose career was ended by this. And then one of the founders of, uh, of Saber Seminar has also been battling, uh, an Angioma over the last year. Uh, so they have added a second charity, so now 100% of the funds go to the Jimmy Fund and, uh, the Angioma Alliance, I believe we raised $25,000 this weekend, which is pretty awesome.
0: No, that's great. Wow. And, uh, angioma does not sound pleasant from this brief description.
1: cavernous brain bleed could be uh I could think of more things I would want to do on a weekend.
0: Yeah, no, it's, yeah, you would really want to reduce uh bleeding in the brain to a minimum.
1: Right, yeah. And especially cavernous. Like ew, I think yeah, I don't minimal, necessarily minimal know brain bleed is bad enough. But.
0: It doesn't sound it's not help it doesn't seem to help it I mean, is my, yeah. yeah. No, that's that sounds uh frightening. Anyway, uh appears to be a great event, and uh, good things coming of it so very good uh, oh here's a uh, thing I was uh, <laughs> as uh, occasionally I will read baseball related news um and I don't know i'm I'm putting you on the spot here Dave Cameron, but i'm but um frequently you have more information about this sort of thing today, I believe today or yesterday the Toronto Blue Jays fired their scouting director. that's correct is that right Brian Parker yeah uh, and maybe some other sort of um uh, and maybe they, they fired someone else from the scouting department yeah, uh, as well. Yeah,
1: of their pro scouts.
0: Okay, yeah. So here's the thing. So uh, obviously uh, the Blue Jays are having a pretty good season this year. Yeah. Right. They're, are they are they're in first first place in the AL East. I think that their chances of qualifying for uh well, but uh, winning the division or getting a wild card, support, it's like 50-50 in each case. Yeah. Um of course, they they also had uh, a good season last year. They made the playoffs for the first time in a while. Um, what seems to be strange about the Blue Jays, for a team that has not had much success, you know, in the last couple of decades, um, and then uh, and has now found success in the last couple of years, has also um, what seen the team's GM leave in between one of those years, uh, Alex Anthopoulos, and now has actually fired what, two, two relatively, uh, high ranking members of their amateur scouting department.
1: Yeah. I think those things are related, right? So those are not un- unlinked events. They're not unrelated. Right.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. So oh. I'm, so I'm curious. And, um, I don't know. We, we've talked about the Anthopolis situation. Yeah. I think we've touched on it a couple of times. And in that, in that we said, well, it's probably a lack of uh, autonomy is probably. Um, well, at least that was the most reasonable explanation for Anthopolis. Do you think that's a, a, a similar situation here?
1: No, in this situation, I think almost every time you see any kind of executive change, uh, within the next year, you see, um, turnover at lower levels because the executives want to bring in their own people, right? So Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins came in from Cleveland. Um, what generally what happens is when a team, uh, hires people away from another organization, the organization who's losing the, like in this case Atkins, would put a prohibition and say, okay, you're allowed to take our assistant GM and make him your GM, but you're only allowed to take one other person from our organization in the next 12 months, uh, or sometimes two other people. They put a basically a limit so that the whole organization doesn't get raided and leave with the guy who's leaving. Um, But then over time, the people who were under contract to the organization uh, those contracts expire and they become able to go wherever they want. And so uh, I think it's certainly possible that Ross Atkins would like, and Mark Shapiro would like to bring in people that they've worked with previously who perhaps they share uh, fundamental agreements on baseball and they could trust them to implement the plan they want to implement. And those people might now be available for hire that weren't six months ago or a year ago. So I think this is not necessarily anything against Brian Parker or any of the Blue Jays scouts. This is just the inevitable result of organizational change.
0: Do you you recall any situations, though, uh, in which there was this sort of turnover within a team that was having so much success, especially relative to their recent track record?
1: I mean, I think you pointed to the Dodgers a few years ago, right? Like, uh, when yeah. Coletti was fired, they weren't necessarily coming off a terrible season, I don't believe. They had been, like, recently okay because they would spent a ton of money and they didn't spend it well. Um, but then Andrew Friedman and Farhan Zaidi came in and basically changed the entire front office and kind of, uh, uh, you know, had success since then. Um, but I don't think the Dodgers were uh, in a situation where, they, you know, they weren't, they had bought about, they weren't the Astros or the Phillies or something. Um, usually you don't see executive changes from teams who are winning, uh, uh you know, on the field. Usually if a team is winning, then they, the people in place get to keep their jobs. Uh But I think time you see an executive change, regardless of what the team on the field is doing, the lower level people are at risk. But just because the executives want to bring in their own folks.
0: Right. So you say, you think this is just a, a product of typical turnover yeah. and it's, uh, it just happens to be, um, it just happens to involve a team that's, that's been pretty good, but, uh, there's a difference maybe between being good for a few years and then, uh, but, but, uh, perhaps not necessarily in the way that the new executives regard as the, the best way of maintaining that success.
1: Yeah. I mean, even if you're like, so like, you know, Ross Atkins and Mark Spiro could out like a lot of respect for Brian Parker and be like, you're really good at your job. But at the same time, we just have philosophical disagreements about how we want things to be done. And we didn't hire you and you kind of came with the franchise. But now that we've had some time and we've spent some time around you, we wanted to give you a fair shot. How we continue to be convinced that there's philosophical disagreements are there Uh, and so we want to have someone who's philosophically in agreement with us. So it doesn't even necessarily, I think when you're looking at like why a scouting director loses his job, it really has nothing to do with the team on the field. And it's almost entirely, you know, did the person who originally hired him, is that person still in power? If the answer is no, he's probably getting fired just because (laughs) that's the answer. Uh, or if the person who is still in power was the person who hired him, is he getting scapegoated? uh because the the g m doesn't want to get fired himself and is like throwing someone under the bus for the owners that also happens
0: right okay all right right, we'll figure that out uh last last uh question I'd like to ask you uh before the before the much anticipated gutter versus drain uh conversation or brief conversation i won't i will uh, keep it very long is the it concerns revocable waivers we are now in the period when players have to pass through revocable waivers in order to be traded. Uh, yes. Uh, what, uh, revocable, why do I care about this? Mm. I don't know. this That's just that's a period. A, where... the
1: listeners asking themselves right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I just, I guess maybe I'm looking for confirmation. Yeah. I made a note, revocable waivers. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's a thing that exists. No one really knows why it exists. It's a little silly.
0: Okay. But people, players are passing through revocable waivers even as we speak.
1: Yeah. Especially ones with big contracts.
0: Okay, here's a question though: Is how so I go? You know, I go to MLB trade rumors. You know, uh,
1: yeah, that's a thing.
0: Yeah, and then at MLB trade rumors, they announce something like you know, um, like whoever most recently passed through, revocable.
1: Joe Kim Soria passed.
0: Sure, through. Joe. Yeah. Sure, Joe Kim Soria. Um, but it's my understanding that this is not something that the league announces when a player has or hasn't passed yes, through.
1: It's not public information.
0: Right, so, okay, so this is just, so they have here, it, you know, they uh, cite John Haven, and so this is just something that John Haven has reported.
1: Yeah, so basically, if, if you want to put someone on waivers, every team in the league gets a notification, usually email, uh, mm-hmm. and says, so-and-so's on waivers for the next 48 hours, and then when he clears... Uh, it becomes clear that like no one claimed him in the last 48 hours. I don't know if there's another email that goes out that says, so it's so cleared, but at least you can see like there would be an announcement because you know, this guy's on waivers and then, mm-hmm. you know, nothing happened. So therefore you can assume he cleared waivers. Uh, and then, you know, so, some reporter like John Heyman or Ken Rosenpaul or whatever speaks to someone with a team who has this information and they tell him, yep, so it's so cleared waivers. Who at,
0: who at the, at, at any given club receives that email?
1: Uh, I think there's like a, a variety of mailing lists. So I know like there's an assistant GM email chain that goes to every AGM in baseball. I'm almost certain that they, they would be on the people on waivers and then usually there's like lower level email chains. Um but I think the league has specific kind of mailing lists that go out and I'm I can't say for sure who gets exactly which email but I know that like at at the very minimum you're going to see like assistant GMs getting a list of the, of uh kind of who's on waivers every day and then very likely they've set up some kind of forwarding filter that would pass that down to someone whose job is to handle the kind of the waiver information and distill it down to a report for the executives to see every day.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, you've nearly fulfilled your obligation. That's 38 minutes. That's pretty good. <clears throat> I have water coming off my roof. Yeah.
1: Okay. Kind of what water roofs are there for.
0: Yeah. Right. No. So good thing that. But it's coming off... And it's, and it's creating in, uh, the back of the house, it's creating like a line, you know, maybe like three, three feet out from the foundation, a line of hard packed, um soil Imagine. that's unappe- unattractive. And we're also getting, we have a little bit of leakage in the basement. Okay. Um, so on the one hand, uh, we could get to some sort of drain. we could increase the grade close to the foundation, right.
1: that's, the soil grade. That's recommended no matter what you do. But.
0: Sure. Although it's not a terrible, we don't have a terrible grade, I should say. It's about, it's roughly even. Um, um, So we could do that, but this would not solve the problem of this line of compacted soil. Can I, can I pause you for
1: one second? Yeah. My son has come over and is now staring at me and then slowly backing away. It's really, it's, (laughs) it's really adorable. (laughs) <laughs> okay you can go back to talking that's about no that's
0: no less important yeah. than what he's what's like
1: holding your fingers staring me down and then like backing up
0: <laughs> uh sure yeah i don't know so then i got so i say if, if i'm going to do one or the other i'm thinking gutter because i can control the water coming off the roof and then i could even maybe send it into a rain
1: barrel barrel yes you could do – so I know people who have rain barrels. I do not know any people who think that their rain barrels are particularly good investments that they're happy with. Oh, really? Yeah. Because uh, I think rain like, rainwater isn't necessarily um, a super efficient way – like rain barrels aren't a super efficient way of collecting it. So like if, you, if it rains a lot, your barrel fills up, and then you don't get any of the surplus from the massive storm because you didn't go empty your barrel because it's raining – and you didn't want like to go outside in the rain and like empty your barrel into some other jug or compartment or whatever. And there's no like pumping system. I mean, there might be, but most people don't have like systems to drain the barrel for you. And then like if it doesn't rain, your barrel is useless. So, uh, so I think I would probably, in your case, not be super incentivized to go for rain barrels.
0: Wait, wait, what, but you don't you just use the water? You just use the water. Right, Incentive but like barrel.
1: But if you're only ca- so like say you have over a hundred gallon rain barrel or something. Uh, and there's like a massive storm, so you get a hundred gallons uh, of per, water per storm. Uh, you are not going to be collecting enough water to justify the investment of your rain barrel for quite a long time. Like the payoff of like, okay, you save some water, but this cost you like a you know a rain barrel system up front. You could have just you know bought a lot of water with your money that was like,
0: oh yeah, that's uh, right. Well, how much does a rain barrel cost? I think they're not they're
1: a few hundred bucks plus you have to like have the setup yeah. and, and they're not super cheap.
0: Ah, uh, that's more than I was expecting you to say.
1: I mean, I could be wrong because I haven't personally looked at rain barrels in a while. But uh, I, you could I, be wrong. I have some neighbors who have a rain barrel. And I think they said they spent a few hundred dollars on it.
0: Well, I guess them. I wouldn't be doing it entirely because of cost. I would be doing it to address the part of me that is afflicted by being <laughs> that is afflicted by my presence on the earth, and uh, I'm probably slowly ruining the earth be- just because I'm here.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can do it to offset your guilt if you'd like, or you can just, like, you know, send some money to someone in California who actually needs to buy some water.
0: They need water.
1: In, in Maine, I don't think be- you have a significant water crisis.
0: No, they should also just move if they're in California that's because their property is also really expensive. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, all right. Well, that's great, Dave Cameron and I. Happy, that's happy great, to like
1: just uh, rain on your parade, but with uh, uh, the kind of rain that you can't collect in a barrel.
0: Topical joke. Yeah. Hey, listen! You have your—you totally fulfilled your obligation, Dave Cameron. I'm excited about that. Okay, all right. Well, thank you for joining us. You're
1: welcome for joining me.
0: That has been—we'll not—you will not be here Monday. Instead, I believe Sam Miller will appear yeah, on I'm the fine. program.
1: I had a really lovely dinner with Sam Miller on Sunday.
0: Oh, what a pleasant guy! Right? Yeah, it's true. Um, you know, so a, but we'll say goodbye to you in a second. We'll stick around for one second. I, in the meantime, however, I will say that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stuley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.